0: You're listening to the Converging Paths podcast, brought to
1: you by Asia House and the Barakat Trust, with the support of the Tajier Trust and the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. Hello everybody, this is Juan de Lara from Asia House. Today we're very happy to bring you a podcast, which is extremely interesting because it's from the point of view of a practitioner, one who has actually been working on site at historical heritage monuments, and who can share with us her experience and work shifting societies. Today we have Dr. Maya Librasi, who is a conservation architect based in Cairo, who is a graduate of Al Shams University and SOAS, where she did her M.A. and Ph.D. She also established Megaura Built Environment Collective and Alazar Alina, where she worked preserving heritage of historic Cairo involving the local community. In addition to this, she is an honorary professor of practice at SOAS University in London. Today we have the director of the Barakat Trust, at Rashidi, to conduct the interview. So welcome, May. Welcome, Saves.
0: Thanks, Juan. And thank you, May, for being on our podcast series. It's especially a privilege to have you, given that you have a very long relationship with the Barakat Trust and you've worked on Cairo and historic Cairo for so long, and we're very keen to... Hear your insights. You started a program called Arthur Lena. Can you tell us what that means and what it's about?
2: Yes. Thank you, first of all, for having me. It's uh, it is a pleasure because I feel that Barakat have been such an have played such an important role in my path and in my career throughout the years. So it's always a pleasure to contribute to the work. I'm an architect. I specialize in conservation and heritage management. And in two thousand and twelve we started an initiative called Atar Lima, which translates as Heritage is ours. And the point of the initiative was to look at ways of reigniting and strengthening the relationship between people and their heritage, especially in dense historic cities, living cities like Historic Cairo. And the point of creating this link and this relationship is not simply because it is their heritage, and they have a, 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 a they should have connection to it, but also because we believed that if people have a sense of ownership of the heritage, they will be more active in taking care of it and, and safeguarding it. And we also believed that the sense of ownership is derived from benefits. If people benefit, whether spiritually, uh, socially, economically, culturally, from a place they will have a vested interest in taking care of it and making sure that it is preserved. And so we called the initiative Atar Lina and started to investigate ways of creating these links, engendering this sense of ownership through different activities in historic Cairo, in a neighborhood in the south called El khalifa
0: And what kind of projects you do? And also, can you tell us about some of the ones that have been the most successful?
2: Yes, well, we started in 2012 and for six months we just talked to people. We talked to different types of stakeholders from the community, from uh, the government, uh, from academics, professionals, to ask this question about the relationship between communities and their heritage. And at the end of the six months, through a process that we call participatory research, where different kinds of stakeholders are actively involved in asking the question and finding the answer, we found that we could work in different directions. We found that conservation still continues to be a very important activity. We have a lot of heritage sites that require conservation, but that a site should be conserved and used by the community, whether adapted or used for its original purpose. We also found that the sense of ownership develops at a young age. So we work on heritage education, particularly with children. We then started to work with women. And now we've added a component of heritage industries. By heritage industries, I mean any kind of activity inspired by heritage that generates some kind of income. So crafts are heritage industries, conservation is a heritage industry, obviously anything related to tourism, etc. And the third line of activities is more of a general line that connects heritage sites to their urban settings and tries to ground any kind of conservation management work within the socioeconomic setting by finding linkages of mutual benefits, so urban regeneration, issues related to infrastructure, uh, related to public space, general quality of life, that improve the quality of the environment, both for the community and for the heritage site.
0: Well, can you give us a couple of examples of these sorts of initiatives?
2: Yes, in terms of conservation, I think our biggest and most impressive project so far has been the project for the conservation of the mausoleum of Al-Imam al-Shafei. This is a 13th century building. It is a shrine built to honor the founder of one of four rites of Sunni Islam, Al-Imam Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafei. And it's a beautiful building, not just, uh, so it's spiritually extremely important, not just for Egyptians, but for the entire Islamic world. But it's also extremely important as a record of different styles of Islamic art through the ages. Because it has been added to time and time again by different rulers and different people of wealth, of power, etc., through the year. And so, from 2016 to 2021, so for five years, we worked on the conservation of the building. This was with funding from the U.S. Ambassador's Fund for Cultural Preservation, but the Barca Trust also contributed. The Dutch Embassy in Egypt also contributed. And I think the reason why I say it's our most impressive project is obviously because of the size of the building, but also because of the reception that we got after the building was open to the public. So in the midst of Corona, we managed to open it for a month after, it's, after the inauguration of the conservation project. And our average number of visitors per day was a thousand visitors. So people had missed the building and they were really excited to go back and to see it and to see the difference. That the conservation project has done so this is in terms of conservation in terms of heritage education and heritage uh, industries i think the project that is dearest to my heart is our heritage education school uh, so in the neighborhood of khalifa where we work since 2013 we've run a summer school for the children of the neighborhood that teaches them about their heritage it has now extended to heritage education activities for women as well but also, as the kids grew older, it morphed into a kind of vocational training where we introduced teenagers to the career possibilities that they could have through Heritage. So now we have teenagers who want to work as a tour guide. Uh, another one is very interested in the arts. We have some teenagers who are now helping us with, our, with the school for the younger children. And it has really been gratifying to see them grow and to see how they themselves can see the links between themselves as contemporary beings today, and the heritage that they live within. In terms of the more urban and contextual component of the work we do, we started off just trying to understand the neighbourhood, so we did a lot of mapping, we did a lot of research, we have prepared conservation and management plans for different uh, neighbourhoods within the district that we work, but we've also looked a lot at the obstacles to improving quality of public space in the neighborhoods in general. And for us, the main obstacles were infrastructure and services. So we started investigating infrastructure. And the the main point we wanted to look at was the problem of groundwater. We have a problem of rising groundwater in Al-Khalifa. This is not naturally occurring groundwater. This is water that has seeped from network supply and sewage networks mostly supply, and this is why we file it under the issue of infrastructure. So we started to investigate this problem and to work in two directions. The first was to do the research, to give it to the government, and to advocate for fixing the problem of the network so that less leakage happens and the level of groundwater falls. Now, obviously, we want the level of groundwater to fall because it affects heritage sites adversely. It causes damp damage it causes soil damage, it causes inundation in some buildings, but it also affects the health of the community, problems with the joint pain, respiratory problems, etc. Uh, and so the first direction is to give the problem to the government as a study to propose solutions and to advocate for some kind of large-scale solution. And the other approach is to see what we can do and to think of place-based actions that we can do within our scale. And in this case, we started to investigate the possibility of extracting this water, of course, in a manner that does not harm the heritage buildings, but not throwing it back into the system, using the water for irrigation, for cleaning, for fire control, for flushing, if you will. And we were most interested in the issue of irrigation. So we had two buildings that had this problem, and they have a kind of an empty space next to them. So what we've been doing now is extracting water from underneath these buildings and using the water to irrigate the parks that we created, we're currently creating actually. And so again, linking back to our original mandate of benefiting both community and heritage. So the level of water falls, this benefits heritage and you have a park, this benefits the community. And now we're also able to investigate this interesting link between heritage and environment and debate it through the park with the community, because obviously we will be using the park for the community.
0: Wow. So a very impressive range and also a very impressive way of thinking of heritage. But you mentioned a lot the idea of community and place and identity. And I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about Imam Shafi and why the shrine is so important and how people respond to it in different ways. I mean, why of all the buildings that you've restored, this is the one that has resonated most strongly?
2: Well, I think I first have to say that I did my master's and my PhD on the history of the cemetery. And cemeteries of Cairo are an extremely special place. They are multifunctional, which means that they're not just places of burial. You also have people living there. You have commercial pockets. And this has been historically the case, at least as early as the ninth century. So they're an extremely interesting place to study. But also in the midst of this really busy, bustling city, they are a haven of quiet and calm. And for me, they occupy a very special place in my heart, especially the Southern Cemetery, which is the older of the cemeteries in Cairo. And the Imam Shafi is the spiritual center of the Southern Cemetery. One thing to know about the Imam Shafi Dome is that it is venerated and revered by the local community. And when we opened the, the building after conservation, we had recurring visits from the people living immediately in the vicinity of the, of the dome. So there's, people are very attached to it. It is also venerated by Egyptians in general, whether Kyrenes or people who come for it, It's uh, the, mule, the 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 Saint's Day celebration that happens annually from all over Egypt. But it also has a very strong following in Asia, and Southeast Asia in particular, because a lot of the Muslims there are Shafi'i. They follow the Shafi'i right of Sunni Islam, the Imam Shafi'i's interpretation of the rulings of Sunni Islam. So, to give you an idea how how important that is, we have quite a strong contingent of students who study at Al-Azhar and uh, who are Shafi'i, and they uh, constitute around two-thirds of the visitors who come to Imam al-Shafi'i daily. So it's extremely popular. Then you have people who are interested in Shafi'i for cultural reasons because it is such a beautiful building. It's the largest wooden dome uh, from the Islamic period in Egypt. It has some unique features that only feature there. Uh, As I said, it's almost like uh, a record of different Islamic styles through the ages. It is an incredibly impressive building aesthetically and structurally. And then there is that added spiritual component. For us as conservatives, there, was all, there were also the technical challenges, that you you have to understand the history of the building, you have to understand the different kinds of significances, you have to make sure that you balance between the needs of the different users, you, you frame and you emphasize the cultural importance, but that you should not in any way take from the claims of the, of the spiritual visitors, and they should be allowed to use the building freely and then you also have technical problems like marble that keeps on falling off when it is attached because of groundwater again. So you have to figure out new inventive ways of refixing it and ventilating behind the marble so that damp from the walls does not move to the marble itself. You have a beautiful uh, ceramic mosaic floor that again is, has to be protected somehow, but kept in place. So how to protect it, how to keep it in place. We excavated under the floor of the dome and found an earlier shrine that had been built around 80 years prior. And nobody had known anything of that shrine. And so there was the challenge of documenting it in a manner that I can build it tomorrow. Not tomorrow, but I can start building it tomorrow. According to the exact dimensions, we traced the building, all the remains brick by brick. We surveyed them extensively. But then figuring out what to do, whether to keep it open or to bury it again. And the choice was to bury it, because if we kept it open, spiritual visitors, uh, their spiritual experience it would be undermined. But then what to do with the information. So now we're working on the Visitor Center to, in order to share all the information with, with the visitors and get them to understand more about the building. So it's it's a beautiful challenge in that sense. And then in parallel to conservation, we also ran tours, we ran storytelling tours to get people more interested in the story of Imam shafi We've also, with funding from the Barakat Trust, designed and implemented a self-guided tour around the Imam shafi that only employs murals and QR codes so that people can go around and explore on their own. And now within the visitor center, there's going to be an activity room that teaches children and young adults about the history of the place through games and toys, so it's been a wonderful journey, and it's really—it's been extremely enriching and extremely challenging, and that's why for me, it's, it's the pinnacle of our work, if you will.
0: One of the things that struck me about a really magnificent building and restoration project is that around the cenotaph of Imam Shafi himself, all these letters and the fabric and things like that. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about the way in which he's venerated.
2: Yes. I think, yes, that is one of the most poignant things about the shrine, the fact that people come and write letters to Imam Shafi. Imam Shafi is perceived as a symbol of justice, as a good judge. And what we find is people coming from all over Egypt, mostly from the provinces. And in the letters, they will talk about a fight that they've had with a neighbor, a grievance with a relative, a problem that they have with their sons or their daughters, or a health problem whatever you can imagine. And they will write that letter and they will throw it inside, the, within the screen that, that surrounds the cenotaph of the Imam shafi And this has been a practice that's recorded as early as the 1950s. At the time when we opened it, it, we were worried that people might forget to do it, but they came and they did the exact same thing. And there's actually an anthropologist from the 1950s who studied these letters and from the point of criminology, because there were all these reformed criminals and people who wanted to repent, who believed that if they wrote Imam Shafi'i a letter with their crimes, somehow they would find repentance and absolution. somehow. People also, and this is common to many shrines, they will come with clothing belonging to a loved one who's going through some kind of problem, and they will dust the maksura, which is the screen around the Imam Shafi'i. And either throw the piece of clothing in, or they will take it with them as a kind of uh, blessing. Now there are other kinds of rituals. So the visitors from Southeast Asia will sit, and they will recite all these different kinds of zikr and it's really beautiful because it's slightly foreign, but it's still Quran, and it's you know the religious sayings and chantings, etc. So so it's it's a place of ritual in a very beautiful way, and what's beautiful about it is that people without really studying the life of Leram Shafi seem to have honed onto why he's so special, because he was known as an amazing scholar, supposedly he had a photographic memory, he was known for being very rational in his rulings, but then when you look at his poetry, it's extremely human, it's extremely simple, and to this day in Egyptian Arabic, you'll find phrases and bits of his verses that we use without even knowing, and so there's this wonderful connection that people have with Imam Shafi, who's not even Egyptian. He was born in Gaza, in Palestine, and he traveled all over the Islamic world until settling in, in Egypt in the last uh, years of his life.
0: Well, it's fascinating to think about this continuity. But actually, I wanted to ask you about something else. In the time that you've been working on heritage preservation in Cairo, around 30 years or so, how have people's attitudes changed towards heritage and historic buildings? And has social media had an impact?
2: I think that people are definitely more interested in heritage. And I think in the past 10 years, heritage has been threatened in ways that are quite new and quite visceral, if you will. Which the downside of that is that, of course, we've lost a lot of beautiful heritage sites. But the upside is that heritage has become more more mainstream. People are more interested in what happens through social media. You're able to mobilize people if a building is being threatened. It does not mean that when they are mobilized, you actually can get something done. But sometimes it does mean that. And so so I think it has definitely become more mainstream. I think the other thing that has happened is that our understanding of heritage has widened. That it is no longer simply about monuments, as we call them in Egypt, which are grade A-listed sites. But it is also about intangible heritage, it's about craft, it's about the urban setting in general, so the city as living heritage, the patterns of its streets, the activities that happen within its streets, uh, h- historic buildings that are not that important individually, but as an urban assemblage, they are extremely important and they should be preserved. So all of this, I think, is new. I think after the 2011 revolution, There was no tourism, so there was no money to conserve for conservation projects. And so the Ministry of Antiquities itself, it was had been newly founded at the time, needed to turn to other ways of kind of taking care of heritage. So they became more and more invested in softer approaches to heritage, to heritage education, to community involvement. So museums started to become extremely interested in involving local communities in their activities and running these activities. So this is the upside. The downside is that the city has severely deteriorated, and I'm talking about historic Cairo now, in the last years, We also have an issue of the developments that are happening in Cairo in general, the expansion of Cairo, which requires, um, according to planners, I do not agree with that approach, but it requires the introduction of lots of highways and flyovers within the city, which means that, and this has affected many heritage sites, we've had the Southern Cemetery of Cairo, very close to where I work, being cut by this huge flyover. We've had uh, streets that are widened and this affected historic Cairo, but it's also affected the later, early 20th neighborhoods, such as Heliopolis and Nahidi. So it's a mixed bag, I would say.
0: Well, I mean, one of the things that strikes me as a fellow Kyrian and also slightly from a distance is that there are many great initiatives to preserve heritage in Cairo. And yet, Overall, it doesn't seem to be better. Why is this so?
2: Yes, I agree with you. There are uh, one of, I, and thank you for reminding me because I, I would have liked to mention this, that we also see lots of initiatives that are run by professionals, local professionals and uh, heritage enthusiasts, whether working on conservation or linking conservation to uh, development the way we do, or more on heritage education and awareness. I think the problem is that Historic Cairo is huge. Cairo in general is huge. And we can only make a small impact. The only entity that is able to make a real impact is the government. Because for me, top on the list of the problems of Cairo is is the problem of management. And I will speak about Historic Cairo because this is where I work and this is what I know more. Historic Cairo suffers from the fact that it it is managed by a number of conflicting governmental entities, each with its own agenda. There is no clear mechanism for collaboration and for uh, joint planning between them. And so the result is that it is very difficult to get anything done. We have conflicting laws, we have conflicting regulations, and we have conflicting mandates within the government itself. The only solution is for the government to create a managing body that brings together all these different kinds of entities and so that things can happen faster. The other problem that we have is that I don't think that the government is that convinced of the importance of the communities living in these uh, these neighborhoods. For years, we've heard terms like Historic Cairo is an open-air museum. This is, of course, ridiculous. It is a living, breathing city that will change. And what we need is a clear mechanism for governing this change, for for controlling it, for supervising, so that the city is allowed to develop, people are allowed to live, and at the same time we try and keep our heritage and we keep this continuum of development in a manner that is not that where there's no rupture, there's no destruction the way the way we have it right now. So yeah, I I think for me the community is key in terms of a partner, but even more important is a change in approach from the state where it starts to uh, develop a more nuanced understanding of our heritage cities and it also starts to develop a stronger understanding of its responsibilities and the complexity of the issues that, that it is dealing with and the fact that it requires a strategy that is both short-term but also long-term in, in terms of how to manage these complex settlements.
0: Do you think that might come about?
2: Well, I mean, there are, you know, there are activities right now. There are steps being taken to work quite extensively in historic Cairo. It's starting to happen. I've been to meetings where these issues have been discussed and the state representatives have expressed an interest in adopting this kind of two-pronged approach where they they pilot rehabilitation and regeneration projects in certain areas, in parallel with thinking of a long-term solution for the management issues. But unfortunately, as with all politicians, the short-term solution is much more attractive because you see the results early and a politician's career is never going to last long enough to see the results of a long-term plan for kind of reformulating the management of a city and so the interest tends to go more into the pilot projects which are important but if we do not have clear steps towards resolving the management issues then it will just be a project among many it'll just be on a larger scale
0: well what do you think people like you and others can do to help support the state go in the right direction
2: i think we should continue doing what we do because we have we're more flexible we can be more experimental But I think that we should be an integral component of the work that we do should include research and should include education and advocacy. Uh, And the research that we do should be shared with the government. It should be explained to the government. And we should also be willing to support the government technically in the work that it does, which is, by the way, these are all things that we as Asar Lena or Megawra, those environment Collective do. But I also think that something has to happen where people like us who are... Used to a more flexible way of learning, are able to become an integral part of, of what the government does, and that there is a way that members of the younger generation who who have learned, who have studied with us, or who have uh, apprenticed with us, are able to actually become part of the government and to work the way we do, obviously, in a manner that would be much more impactful. So, from from our perspective, what we do is we share as much as possible of of what we learn. We train as much as possible and we provide technical support almost always pro bono to the government if needed. So for right now, for example, in the street of Al Khalifa, which is another neighborhood where where we work, we are providing all the designs to the Cairo governorate for the renovation of the street, whether paving or facades or infrastructure, free of charge. And we are also providing consultation and services later on. And this is the kind of collaboration that we're able to do.
0: Well, it sounds encouraging, and I hope that I hope that the synergy between the non-government entities like yours and, and the government apparatus will indeed resolve some of the long-standing challenges. I mean, you're someone that's always very active and always has great ideas up your sleeve, and I wondered what's next for you.
2: Well, we're right now we've started working on the visitor center for Imam Shafei. This is uh, very exciting for us because it's our first uh, chance to set up a proper visitor center in a site that we have conserved. We're also trying to focus more on institutionalization of knowledge. So as I said, we do a lot of research. Uh, We recently started our own line of uh, small publications to share the research that we do. And now we're looking in collaboration with a couple of other entities who work in Cairo. We're looking into the possibility of establishing an educational platform that provides alternative education to students and fresh graduates who are interested in the built environment from an equitable preservation perspective to give them a chance to train with us a chance to uh, to attend small workshops or even longer courses and this is for professionals who are interested in that field and don't really find the proper training at universities that allow that allows them to to work in that field. We're also developing our heritage industries program. So now we're starting to work with teenagers who've, who, as I said, have been participants in our heritage schools for years to develop their own line of products and activities that are inspired by their neighborhood from their perspective. So we're working. We're expanding. We're working along a number of different lines. The challenge for us here is always just to keep a clear eye on our mandate, to try and juggle all the different opportunities that come along, but also to respond to the challenges that are thrown at us, because it is not really that easy to plan in the context of Egypt. So we have to be organic, but structured at the same time. So that's always a challenge.
0: Well, I'm sure you'll rise to meet it. And the response to your last project, the member Shafi, has been phenomenal. And I hope that um, you continue to do other projects that leave such an impact and
1: have such a value to the community as well.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, say for me. And before wrapping up today's episode, I wanted to share with you, our audience, a little note of gratitude. This is the last podcast I will be conducting at Asia House as in October and taking over a new role elsewhere. And it is with a little bit of pain that I share this news with you. This series began two years ago when the pandemia hit us, and since then they have been a constant way of communicating new and old ideas with you. But not only that, it actually has been a great way to stretch in bonds with many of you, hearing about your whereabouts, hearing that you were well, and hearing wonderful feedback on the podcasts. I just want to send you a heartfelt thank you for letting me enter your homes during this time and to be part of this journey, which is learning and expanding horizons together. Until we meet again.